More than 300 years ago, the French monarch, King Louis XIV of France, is reported to have asked Blaise Pascal, the, the famous mathematician, physicist, and philosopher, to give him some proof of God's existence. How do we prove, or how would you prove that God exists? And Pascal answered, why, the Jews, your majesty, the Jews. Now I've actually heard it said along those same lines that the existence of the Jewish people is a strong evidence for the existence of God. Now I don't think you're going to prove to an unbelieving world that God exists in any way, but certainly we ought to stop and take notice that the Jewish people are still alive today, which is pretty remarkable when you think about it. Against all odds, the Jewish people have been targeted for destruction again and again throughout history. Just look through the pages and you will see it. The fact that they have survived, there, there must be something going on here. I remember when I was living in Israel, I remember seeing a t-shirt that was for sale in a number of different stores and, and souvenir shops in Israel. And this t-shirt on it said... Uh, it had a list that says nations that tried to destroy Israel. And it has them listed down. Uh, ancient Egypt, Persia, Babylon, uh, Greece, Rome, etc., etc. And it goes all the way down to Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. And, and next to each one it says a big X. They're gone. They're destroyed. And then at the bottom of the t-shirt these words were written in big bold letters. The smallest of nations but with a friend in the highest of places. So be nice. Well, certainly, as we think about the existence of Israel and how they have, in fact, survived against all odds, it makes us stop and wonder, stop and think. As you look in Scripture, we see that God, having chosen Israel as his people, has placed his hand of protection on them. Listen to the words of Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8. The Bible says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, after glory he sent me against the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you, that is, touches Israel, touches the apple of his eye. So clearly God has appointed a special purpose for Israel and his people. And, and he intends to protect and preserve them. Now that's not to say that the Jewish people have not experienced trouble. Again. Look through history and you will see they've experienced tremendous trouble and persecution and hardship. But through it all, God has preserved these people. And that's what we've seen in the book of Esther. God is not mentioned, yet everywhere in this book his fingerprints are observable. That in the book of Esther, there's no other way to explain how Israel was preserved through this potential holocaust caused by Haman, there's only one explanation that God must have been at work behind the scenes. And God is indeed behind the scenes in the book of Esther. You notice though one thing that's different about Esther than say other Old Testament books is that God is not working in overt, miraculous ways. There are no plagues, or parting of seas, or manna coming from heaven, or anything like that in Esther. It's all sort of the ordinary processes of life. And through them, God is at work to preserve this people, to save them. Let me say it like this. 
God's protection is often more mysterious than miraculous. God's protection is often more mysterious than miraculous. In other words, it's more providential than it is supernatural. I think we could testify in our own lives that the way God works is, is typically not through miracles and amazing signs and wonders, but rather through the workings of details. As we look at our own lives and see that, we also see it here in the book of Esther. This book is fascinating. We've studied our way through. We've seen how Haman had come to power and how he had used his power to target the Jews. And for the first five chapters, six chapters of the book, everything is going Haman's way. It looks like our heroes will be wiped out. And then right at the middle of the book, there's a pivotal change that the winds of fortune shift if we can call them fortune, right? It's, it's serendipitous the way God suddenly moves things in the way of Esther and Mordecai. That fateful night, the king cannot sleep. And tossing and turning, he calls for the books to be read. The books are read, and he suddenly is reminded of Mordecai. What have we done to honor him? And from that moment on, everything shifts, and Haman's plan begins to be undone, and we see everything that happens in the first half is going to be mirrored in the second half. Just as Haman was exalted and, and created an edict, so Mordecai will be exalted and he will have his own edict. And these two halves mirror each other with the, the evil prospering on one side and then the, the reversal, the great change that takes place. Well, as we get to chapter 8, Haman has been discovered. The masks came off in chapter 7, and, and Haman was taken out and executed, an enemy of the king and an enemy of the Jews. But there's a problem. You see, Haman's edict still stands. The, the Jews are still under the threat of this man who has been executed because his program is still in effect. Well, as we look at chapters 8 and 9, and we're going to cover these rather quickly and sort of in a survey type fashion, I'd like us to see three elements of God's work in deliverance as he delivers his people this great deliverance. Number one, God's deliverance works through ordinary people. Ordinary as opposed to supernatural. Again, we don't see angels coming in to assist the Jewish people in this pivotal moment. Instead, it is ordinary people. Everyday people. And we'll see this here in the first few verses of chapter 8. The Bible says here, On the day King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told him how he was related to her. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over all the house of Haman. Now Esther spoke again to the king, fell down at his feet, and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman, the Agagite, and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. So here we find no miracles in Esther, certainly not in chapter 8, but we do see people. And it begins with the king himself, who gives to Esther the house of Haman, and then she in turn gives it to Mordecai. 
Well, the Jewish people, though, are still in danger. Let's begin by looking at Mordecai's promotion, as we see it here in verse 1 and 2. Back in chapter 3, it was Haman, right? Haman was promoted to the leading place in the land. He was given power and prestige. He was given the king's signet ring. And notice, at the beginning of chapter 8, Haman is now off the scene, and even his possessions are belonging to Esther and Mordecai. Now, this was actually common. Uh, when an enemy of the state would be executed, all of their belongings, their, their whole estate, their homes, all their wealth, would transfer to the king. So if anybody was a traitor, the king gets all their stuff. And he can give it then to whoever he pleases. Now, in this case, seeing that Esther and Mordecai were the target of Haman's evil, he feels it appropriate to give them Haman's property. So here's Haman. You know, the, the enemy of the Jews and his house now belongs to Mordecai and to Esther. And all that he had now is Mordecai's. It's this ironic reversal, isn't it? It reminds me of the famous case of Voltaire. Perhaps you've heard this story. The French Enlightenment philosopher Voltaire was a well-known critic of the Bible. He, he wrote books and pamphlets against religion. And he allegedly said, 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth, except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. In other words, the only people who are going to have Bibles in the future is a bunch of uh, you know, antique hunters. Well, within 50 years of Voltaire's death, they were using his printing press in, printing press in his house to print Bibles. It's that ironic reversal. And that's the case here. All that was Haman's now belongs to Mordecai. And so point by point, Mordecai is receiving all that had been Haman's, including, it says here in verse 2, the king's signet ring. This was an official seal that could be used and was used by Haman to make official his edict to kill the Jews. Now it belongs to Mordecai. A little bit more irony. You have to look a little further down. Look down at verse 15 of chapter 8. This is after, after a, a some time passes. It says here, So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. Do you remember a few chapters ago? What was it that Haman wanted? He assumed the king wanted to honor him. And he says, let him wear a crown. Let him wear a royal robe. So Mordecai has everything that Haman had and everything that Haman wanted. So it's all turned around. But it hasn't turned around for the Jews yet, has it? Because the edict still stands. So we see not only Haman, Mordecai's promotion, but Esther's intercession. Take a look at verse 3. Now Esther again spoke to the king, fell down at his feet, and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agagite and the scheme that he had devised against the Jews. And the king held out his golden scepter to the queen. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seems right to the king, and I am pleased in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadetha, the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews 
who are in all the king's provinces. For now, how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? So Esther comes with an appeal for her people. Now, now, Esther's life is safe. Haman's been destroyed. But that's not enough. It seems that Esther has so identified with her people that she will risk her life again and again if necessary. So she comes before the king and she pleads for her people. And, and her request seems logical, right? She says, king, do something about this, these letters that Haman has sent out. Well, what I'm not sure if Esther knew this or not, but what she was asking for was impossible. There was a little thing called the laws of the Medes and Persians, right? We read about this even in the book of Daniel. That when the king made a law, that was it. It was written in stone. In fact, listen to what the king says in the next verse. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given... Esther, the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hands on the Jews. You yourself write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring. Here, listen to this. For whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the signet ring, no one can revoke. And by the way, that meant including the king himself. Now this whole idea of a law of Medes and Persians, a law that cannot be changed or revoked, kind of stemmed from this idea that the king was infallible. You know, the king could make no mistakes. So if, if he was allowed to repeal previous legislation, then it would be a clear statement of, oops, I made a mistake, we're taking that back. Well, the king doesn't make mistakes. So they had this ridiculous law of the Medes and Persians, which locked every decision in. Anything that had the king's signet ring was forever upon the books. It could not be revoked or repealed or something. Uh, Dr. John Whitcomb comments on this. He says, a more cumbersome and costly system can hardly be imagined, all for the sake of the king's intellectual reputation. You know, Esther comes before the king and says, do something about this. Again, I don't know. You know, perhaps, perhaps Esther didn't know how the laws worked. You may say, well, how, how could she have not known? She was living in the palace. Well, you're living in the United States of America. Do you know how all the laws and legislation in this country works? Probably not all the details. Although I will say, the United States has a much better system, right? Because when our founding fathers created the Constitution, they knew there would be amendments. And so they actually wrote into the system a way to change it, to amend it as it goes. A lot better than the laws of Medes and Persians, that's for sure. But they're not an impasse. Esther is asking, pleading for the Jewish people, and the king can't do anything about it. So we see the king's permission that's given. We see the king's permission. You notice this in verse 8? He says, you yourself write a decree. He says, I can't undo the previous one, but you can write another one. And then he basically gives them a blank check, right? Which is kind of foolish on the king's part, because that's how he got into this whole mess, isn't it? He gave Haman, okay, you sign whatever legislation you want. Here's the signet ring. Go do your stuff. And he does the same thing again. Again, I'm not too impressed with the leadership of King Ahasuerus, that's for sure. But he gives them the right to make a counter-decree. And that's exactly what they do. Pick up reading in verse 9. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. 
And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia. 127 provinces in all, to every province in its own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring and sent letters by couriers on horseback, riding by royal horses, bred with swift steeds. So Mordecai writes a counter decree. So instead of Haman's decree being the only one, there's going to be another law which says essentially the opposite. And we're going to read about it here in a second. One little detail just for the sake of trivia. Esther 8.9 is the longest verse in the entire Bible, just in case you wanted to know that. Here's the decree, though, that Mordecai writes, verse 11. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. Now, we will come back to give this edict a little more detail in a few moments. But you notice what it is. Haman had given free range that anybody who wanted to kill the Jews could. It was open season on the Jews in Persia. Now, Mordecai creates a counter decree. The Jews don't have to sit down and take it. They can rise up and fight. There will be no punishment. The the forces of the government will not side with the Persians or the Jews. The Jews will be able to defend themselves properly. And so the decree, in effect, is counteracted by what Mordecai writes. Here's the thing I want to notice, though. As you look at these first few verses, the first ten or so verses of Esther chapter 8, do you see anything miraculous happening? Not really. You see people getting together and talking. You see people writing official decrees and stamping it with signet rings. You see writers going out to the provinces, delivering letters. There's nothing, there wasn't an angel that came down to defend Israel. It was just people. It was court details. It was legislation. It was uh, edicts being passed. Ordinary stuff. If you were a fly on the wall in the king's palace this day, you wouldn't have seen anything that was Different than other days, you know. It's the same old business of the king's court. And yet God was using it to save his people. God uses ordinary people, not supernatural means most often to protect. Let me give you an example from history. I was trying to think of a good case of this. And I thought of Theodore Herzl. Perhaps you've heard of him. Theodore Herzl was the father of modern Zionism. He was born in Hungary in 1860. And if you were looking for somebody to pioneer the Zionist movement and to lead Jews worldwide back to Israel, you would not have picked Theodore Herzl. He was a totally assimilated European Jew. And yet, small details in his life started to come together. One major turning point was called the Dreyfus Affair. There was a French military officer named Dreyfus, who was a Jew. And he was suspected of being a spy. Well, the fact that he was a Jew caused anti-Semitism to spread throughout France. And and people were calling for death to the Jews. 
And this woke Herzl up, and he said, if this is how they treat a high-ranking military colonel, then Jews throughout Europe are not safe. And he began to pioneer. And you know how he did it? He didn't have some miraculous moment. There wasn't some incredible event that took place. Herzl traveled around the world, won supporters, met with delegates, presidents, prime ministers. He met with world leaders trying to gain support for a Jewish state in Israel. What he did was not miraculous. And yet we look back and we see in God's working and bringing Israel into existence as a nation, he was instrumental. God didn't zap lightning from heaven. He used an ordinary person. And many ordinary people. Of course, Herzl wasn't alone in the Zionist movement. But you see what I'm saying? That when God sought to to put Israel back in the land in our day, it was through ordinary people, not some miracle. Now, again, God can do miracles, But most often, his work is mysterious rather than miraculous. Let me also point out that God's deliverance also uses ordinary means. Not just ordinary people, but ordinary means. Again, when we see Israel defending themselves, it's not an angel coming down, slaughtering their enemies. It's the Jewish people rising up to fight for themselves. Let me just say this about our own lives. Isn't this true that God oftentimes... When he protects us, physically even, it's often providentially, right? Like I was thinking, you're you're driving down the road at night, it's dark, it's rainy, your car hits a a, kind of a low spot, you swerve off the road, and your car hits a tree. You're able to come out of the car pretty much okay, you know, maybe a few scratches and things. And then you realize that if, if you would hit that tree six inches this direction, it would have killed you. Now somebody might look at that and say, well, you got lucky. You know, it's a good thing you weren't six inches that direction. As believers, we see that God's protection is often that way, isn't it? Providential. Small little details that we certainly could never have manipulated. But let's see what happens in Esther. They send out these decrees. Look, if you will, at verse uh, 12, on that day, in all the promises, the king Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So that's when the Jews can defend themselves. A copy of the, the document was issued as a decree in every province and published for all people, so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves of their enemies. So the couriers who rode on royal horses went out, hastened, and pressed on by the king's command. The decree was issued in Shushan the citadel. So the the letters go out. The decree spreads. You can imagine Jews throughout the kingdom would have been delighted to hear this news. You know, for the past several months, they've lived under the shadow of death. This feeling of, you know, it's coming. The dread of their own destruction. And now, a new edict. And, And perhaps even as it was posted on the community bulletin board, the Jews went up and thought, oh no, could this get any worse? What else is coming? And then to read, guess what? Mordecai is now on top, and you can defend yourselves. There's no surprise that joy spread throughout the kingdom. It says here in verse 14 that the couriers rode on their royal horses. This was sort of like the Pony Express 
In fact, 2,000 years before the Pony Express was dreamed up, the Persians had what they called the Royal Road. It was a system of transporting mail, and they would have different riders stationed along their routes. And it was one of the most efficient mail systems in the ancient world. In fact, Herodotus, the Greek historian, talks about this and speaks of the, the system that they had. Herodotus said, There is nothing in the world that travers, travels faster than these Persian couriers. They could cover as much as 1,600 miles in nine days. Herodotus praised the Persian mail system. And in fact, one of his words that are included in his Persian wars has become the kind of unofficial motto of the U.S. Postal Service. Here's what Herodotus said about the Persian couriers. Neither snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor gloom of night keeps these couriers from their swift completion of their appointed rounds. Again, that's uh, been unofficially adopted by the U.S. Postal Service. Nevertheless, they, they go out with speed, with haste. They've got good news to share. And they share it all around. Look what happens, verse 16. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. There's rejoicing. Light as opposed to darkness. They've been living under this darkness of Haman's edict for a long time, and now it's as if it's lifted from their shoulders. Verse 17, And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews were glad and rejoiced, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews, because the fear of the Jews fell upon them. That's kind of an interesting statement. Uh, They became Jews. Uh, this, this would be the first time we, we read about proselytes or uh, God-fearers, as they're called in the New Testament, uh, in the Old Testament. Now, I don't know if they actually became Jews as in they truly converted, or if it was just sort of this feeling of, well, we're all Jews today, you know? Do you remember that? Right after September the 11th, 2001, I remember hearing from places around the world, people were saying, we're all Americans today. And that was sort of a motto. Uh, solidarity. So in other words, the Persians are hearing that the Jews are on top and now everybody wants to be a Jew. That seems to be the idea here. Let me ask a couple questions, though, as we, as we think about this passage and about this edict. First question is this. Was this immoral, this edict? Sometimes that's the charge that's brought here in verse 11. Because the, the edict says the Jews can protect their lives destroy, kill, and annihilate. And then it specifically mentions children and women. And it seems like, well, if the Jews are going to go slaughter their enemies and kill women and children, what makes them better than Haman? What makes them better than the Persians? Well, let me, let me try and answer that question. Uh, and I think there's two details that might be helpful. First, the decree of Mordecai is meant to counteract Haman's decree at every single point. So in other words, if it didn't meet Haman's decree at every single point, the Jews would be at a disadvantage. So it needed to answer everything that the previous edict said. And the previous edict said, kill their whole families, wives, children, everyone. Furthermore, and I uh, I think this is correct as I've looked at it, I believe that expression them, their children, and their women, and plunder their possessions is actually a quote from 
Haman's original edict that he had passed. So here's the verse. And you see where it's highlighted or it's bold and italics there at the end? I think that, in quotations, is part of Haman's edict. So in other words, they were told you can destroy, kill, annihilate the armed forces of any people or province who comes to attack who? Them. Jews. Your, in other words, whoever comes to attack you, your children, your wives, and plunder your possessions, you have the right to defend yourself from. So it's not giving them permission to go kill children and women, but rather to defend themselves from those who would kill theirs. I think that's the proper way to look at this. Also, it's helpful to notice that the Jews didn't kill any children or women or plunder anything during this whole thing. In fact, uh, if you look at verse 10 of chapter 9, it says there, they did not lay a hand on the plunder. So, I don't believe this was immoral. There's another question that pops up, and that is, was Esther cruel? Or is Esther cruel? And here's where that comes from. Chapter 9. Let me read this, just so we get the sense of what's going on here. This tells us of the day. The, the day finally arrives for the battle. It's some nine months later after Haman, Mordecai's edict goes out. It says now, in verse 1 of chapter 9. Now in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the 15th, 13th day of the the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On that day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But, here's the key term, the opposite occurred. Isn't that what we've been seeing all over Esther? The, the plans of Haman, the opposite is now occurring. In that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could withstand them. Because fear of them had fell upon all people. And all the officials of the provinces and satraps and governors and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews because of fear of Mordecai fell on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace and his fame spread through all the provinces. For this man Mordecai became increasingly prominent. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction and did what they pleased with those who hated them. And in Shushan, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Which seems like a large number, but it's really small when you compare it to the entire kingdom of what's going to happen. Uh, verses 7 through 10 give us the names of Haman's 10 sons. So we can, we can have me try and stumble through them, or you can just read them yourselves. Haman's 10 sons were part of this attack. After all, their father had been killed by Esther and Mordecai, essentially. And so now it was time for revenge. And they're killed in the battle. Here's the question about Esther, though. Look at what happens next. Verse 11. On that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan the Citadel was brought to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan the Citadel and the ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. Or what is your further request? It shall be done. Then Esther said, if it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to today's decree. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. Here's the question. Is Esther cruel? Because it kind of seems that way. The king comes and says, listen, the Jews have killed 500 people in the city. What, you, what else do you want? And she says, let's do it again tomorrow. And by the way, hang up Haman's ten sons. It's like, whoa. 
you know, is, has her, this power gone to her head? Has she become sort of this evil queen? Or what are we to make of this? Now, I've not always been friendly or kind to Esther. You know, I've been willing to say that I think she was wrong at some points. But I don't think this is one of them. I think Esther is actually very wise here. She realizes that the Jews have won a great victory today, but that the job isn't quite finished. And if they leave it undone, for instance, think about Haman's sons for a second. If Haman's sons had been left alive, they may not have got revenge that day. Sooner or later, they would catch up with Esther and get their revenge. So it's a matter of personal protection, but also the Jews themselves. If, if they left the job half done, it would come back to bite them. In fact, it's likely that the enemies of the Jews were already regathering and planning a counterattack. And so Esther says, let it be done. Let them finish the job. And then the ten sons. She asked that they be hanged and probably was to dissuade any attempt of a counterattack. Again, if, if people saw that we're serious and the Haman's sons are actually displayed in the city as here's what happens to those who come against the Jews, it might quell some of the violence. And there was, by the way, tremendous violence throughout the empire. Uh, if we go down in verse 16, it says... Uh, the remainder of the Jews, the king's promises, gathered together, protected their lives from the rest of their enemies, and killed 75,000 of their enemies. Well, that's an incredibly large number. But let me also remind you, it's not really that large when compared to how many Jews would have been slaughtered if Haman's edict had been able to go through. 75,000 in a, in a kingdom, and it's estimated that the Persian Empire maybe had 100 million people, is... I mean, you, you take 500 from Shushan, 500 from that city, this city. Eventually, it adds up, and you get 75,000 who are killed in the battles. Here's the point, though. God uses ordinary means. The Jews rise up to defend themselves. It's, it's not that God stepped in and, and performed a miracle for them, although we might recognize that God has been at work for the Jews, right? God brought Esther into the palace, and it was Esther who exposed... Haman, and it was Esther that promoted Mordecai, and Mordecai who had written the counter edict. So, was God protecting the Jewish people? Yes, providentially. Not necessarily miraculously. This, I believe, is part of the point of Esther, the entire book, is to give Israel a paradigm, to give them a model of how God is going to protect them as a nation in the years ahead. It's generally going to be through his providence, through his guiding hand rather than his supernatural works and wonders. And we see this. Even as you study Jewish history, one example that pops into my mind is the, the war for independence in Israel. In, in May of uh, 1948, David Ben-Gurion stood behind the microphone in Tel Aviv and declared to the world that Israel was an independent state. And the next day, eight to ten Arab empires declared war on Israel and determined that they would crush this new Jewish state. And it's estimated they were outnumbered about 200 to 1, the Israelis. There is no possible reason on earth that they should have won that war. They were outnumbered, outgunned, out everything by their neighbors. 
And yet against all odds, they survived. And we could tell stories about this, and, and you can go look them up yourself. I've, I've stood at Yad Mordechai, which is a kibbutz on the south of Israel, where 135 Jewish kibbutzim held off several thousand Egyptian soldiers for a week. And there's stories abound of just incredible coincidences that happen. That without which Israel would have been crushed in 1948. And we could go on and on. David Ben-Gurion, who was the first prime minister of Israel, said this. A Jew who does not believe in miracles is not a realist. Let me point out one last element here. And I'm just going to mention this. We're not going to delve into it. God's deliverance also produces extraordinary joy. Extraordinary joy. If you look with me, verse 17, this was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. If we go down to verse 18, which we'll talk about next time, the Jews who were in Shushan assembled together, and they rested, and they made a feast with gladness, and they celebrated. There was a great joy that traveled throughout the empire because of the Jewish victory. The people were saved. And let's not forget how serious this would have been. Virtually all the Jews in the world lived in the Persian Empire. If they had been totally slaughtered and annihilated like Haman's decree, there would be no Jewish people. There would be no Davidic line. There would be no Messiah, Jesus. And so in preserving the Jewish people, God was preserving the line that would lead to the Savior of the world. So there's rejoicing and gladness. We'll talk more about that next time. The Jewish people have been preserved and protected by God throughout history. The famous American writer Mark Twain, who himself was an agnostic, uh, wasn't a believer in, in, in the Lord, wrote in, in 1899, The Egyptian, the Babylonian, and the Persian rose filled the planet with, with sound and splendor, and then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and Roman empires followed, made a vast noise, and they are gone. Other peoples have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burned out, and they sit in the twilight that has now vanished. The Jew saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was, no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alertness or aggressive mind. All things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? You wonder. Another author from that same generation, Leo Tolstoy, a Russian author, gets a little closer to the truth. He says, the Jew is the emblem of eternity. He who neither slaughter nor torture, he who neither slaughter nor torture of a thousand years could destroy, he who neither fire nor sword nor inquisition could wipe off the face of the earth, he who was the first to produce the oracles of God, he who has been so long the guardian of prophecy that has been transmitted to the rest of the world. Such a nation cannot be destroyed. The Jew is as everlasting as eternity itself. I don't know about that exactly. But certainly God who has protected them is able 
Now, let me end with this. What has all this to do with us? After all, we're talking about God preserving the Jewish people. You know, this is all about Israel. What about us as believers in the New Testament? Well, let me point out two things quickly. And first, that is God's hand of protection. God's hand of protection. Let me say it like this. If, if God so protected his people in the Old Testament, what shall he do for us, his children, by adoption? If God protected them at such lengths, will he not also preserve us to the end? And I don't mean that God is going to keep us from all harm or keep us from ever uh, experiencing pain or persecution or hardship or even death. But what matters most is our spirit, the eternal, the God who is able to keep us, that none who are in Christ shall be lost. Talks about in Romans chapter 8, neither sword nor famine or anything in all of creation, height or depth or anything else shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ. The God who holds us is able to protect us and preserve us and keep us to the end. And that's what Jude says. To keep us from stumbling, without fault or blame, to that final day. So the God who protects Israel is the God who protects us. Also, I want to point out God's counter-decree as well. And this, this is how I want to transition now as we take the Lord's Supper. It's interesting the way Esther 8 and 9 plays out. You've got Haman's decree, and then you have Mordecai's decree, which counteracts it. And it wouldn't have been easier just to sweep Haman's decree. It wouldn't have been easier for the king just to say, all right, I know the law of the Medes and Persians, but I'm king, so Haman's rules no longer apply. We're done. I thought about that in terms of the gospel you know, wouldn't it have been easy after Adam and Eve had taken the fruit and, and sinned if God said, well, that's it. I'm just going to wipe these people out and start over again. Or maybe God could have just overlooked the whole thing and said, well, I'm a forgiving God, so I'll just I'll let that slide. No, God is a holy God. And essentially what we have in the gospel is God's counter decree, if you will. And I know this is uh, kind of taking it from... Mordecai's. That God, rather than just sweeping away the stain of sin or, or destroying mankind and starting over, God sets a, a, a counter decree that the wages of sin will be counteracted by the coming of Christ. It is, in a sense, like what we see in Esther. That God's plan is to undo the works of the devil. Just as Mordecai's edict was to undo the evil that Haman had done, so God, in sending his son, counteracts that evil which has been done in drawing us to himself. And that's what we celebrate in the Lord's table. The gospel message. God's plan to save sinners like us. So we can rejoice in Esther, chapter 8 and 9, because our deliverance, in a sense, is much greater than theirs. It's not the deliverance from, a, from the sword or from fire, but a deliverance from the eternal fire that awaits all who have sinned. Let us turn to this God who 
is able to deliver us with his strong hand. 